Good morning. Let us pray. From our distribution hymn, Now All the Vault. O fill us, Lord, with dauntless love, set heart and will on things above, that we conquer through your triumph. Grant grace sufficient for life's day, that by our lives we truly say, Christ has triumphed, he is living. Alleluia. Amen. A few announcements. Um, I got this echo thing going on. Carrie, can you turn down the wireless mic a touch in there? Now we're going to find out if Carrie knows which button it is. It says wireless. Turn it down like a click. Uh, we're looking for a volunteer. Thank you. Perfect. Volunteer. That's perfect. The coffee fellowship. So what you're experiencing now, we need volunteers. I see uh, we have like two names on here. Walsh, Browse, or four. Walsh, Browse, Aurelio, and Ryan. What we need is to have more names on here so that we can keep having coffee and sweets. So if your name isn't on here and would like to be on here, you can make that happen right now by writing your name on this piece of paper. We'll pass it around. <laughs> Jump in if you'd like. Uh, a couple other announcements. Thanks to the trustees. You probably didn't even notice, unless you try to come to, to church and school this week, the concrete, they redid the whole concrete as you enter. So the whole front door section, uh, and also a little piece over by the school too. So a new concrete there. Um, if you had kids doing Easter egg, uh, Easter egg hunt last weekend and, and have, haven't thrown those eggs away yet, there's a big bin over by the Welcome Center. You can drop those eggs off for us to use next year. Thanks for all the help with Easter breakfast and, and the contributions and Easter egg hunt and all the rest. It was a great, great um, celebration last weekend. Um, so that my, my piece of paper says Schumacher's Funeral Planning Seminar, and all I saw was Schumacher's Funeral, and it kind of, I was like, wait a second. <laughs> Just saw the guys. Huh? Um, so on Saturday, April 29th, so it's coming up in a few weeks, we want to talk this up. Um, uh, he's going to have a, he'll have a handout we'll probably pass out next weekend. The idea here is, unfortunately, death often comes when we are unexpecting it. We're not expecting it. And um, a lot of times, well, almost in every case, we're, so Pastor and I will be sitting in the, in the room with the family. We're trying to plan a funeral. And there's a lot on everyone's mind. So you're trying to, and if you've, if you've been through this, you're handed like, say you, your spouse just died or your loved one just died. And like that day, they start asking you questions. So like all of a sudden you got to pick a casket. You got to like determine are we going to, are we going to cremate or, or do, the, do a casket? And which funeral? Do we, do we have a funeral home picked out? Oh, flower. All of a sudden you're picking flowers for the casket. that you didn't, As of yesterday, you didn't even know that this person was going to be dying. And now you're picking out floral arrangements. And in the midst of all that, we come at you and say, do you have any hymns or readings you'd prefer? And it's just like one less, one more thing. So um, what we like to do every, every so often is to kind of offer to the congregation an opportunity to think through these things that no one likes to think about or talk about. Um, it's just like setting your will and your trust and all these kind of things of like, you're, you're, who's going to take care of my kids if I die in a tragic plane crash with, with Mandy at the same time? Like, I don't want to think about that. But unfortunately... You need to think about it. Same with the funeral. Um, so to talk through the theology behind the funeral and really what, what we want to be thinking about is the confession that we're making by the funeral itself. Unfortunately, very often people say, I don't want, I don't want any attention on me. Um, so I'm just going to kind of sneak off into the darkness and die and no one's going to know about it. And that way you don't get any attention. Well, the problem is you're, you, the funeral is, is not so much about you as about the faith that you confessed and that's what we all have comfort in, the living. The living actually take comfort in your confession of Christ crucified while you, while you were living. And so we rejoice in that confession of faith at your funeral and want the hymns to, to support that and also readings. And it's certainly helpful for the, for, for the pastor, for everybody in the, in enjoying the, the funeral service to, like, to, to, to hear, hey, these were the three, the three hymns that were especially meaningful or comforting to the to the person who has died. And these readings were especially significant. Um, otherwise, like I, I'll ask as a pastor, sometimes a person will just say, pastor, you, you knew him or her, so just pick, just pick out whatever you think. Um, but the situation we want to avoid is if you've got like kids or grandkids or people in your family who are like, don't, 
They don't think like you liturgically or even they're not even Christian at all or whatever. They don't think like you biblically. And I'm, imagine me and Schumacher were sitting in the room with, the, with that person trying to plan your funeral and they're fighting against us to have your funeral confess something that you're not about. Like, well, I don't know, grandma really liked Garth Brooks. Like, I know that sounds great, but we're not doing that in the church. And this is, I'm not making this up, right? So, I'm ha- so here I am, what, what could have been an opportunity to kind of share the gospel with this person, now they are mad at us because we have to be the no guy. So you be the no guy, and I'm hiding behind a piece of paper. It says, you know, I know, I, I agree, she loved Garth Brooks, but you know, she wanted these hymns at this funeral, which by the way, I'm gonna say anyway, even if, even if there's nothing on the piece of paper, I'm gonna get behind it and pretend. <laughs> But it helps us if you've actually got your actual sincere desires. So Pastor Schumacher is going to have a seminar to walk through all of those things, uh, hymns, readings, give you an opportunity to think about it, talk about it, and write it down on a piece of paper, which you put in a file, um, and draw on it when when we need it. A couple more quick things. The grass is starting to grow. So we need some lawn mowers. So we're looking to, so that as, as we know, uh, the Deitches, which are heavily involved in that, they've, they've moved to Kansas. So we're looking to replace a few people for that. Uh, Marty's heading up that effort. So if you, if you want to help out or learn more about the, the lawnmower, if you've, if you've ever like, if you've ever, if you haven't had the opportunity yet to ride a, lawn, a riding lawnmower, it's got that zero turn radius. It is fun. It's a whole new level of lawn mowing. So uh, if you want to, It's a great way to finish off your week on Friday. Talk to Marty about that. And uh, last but not least, this Saturday is our school's uh, adult social and auction. It's like one of the biggest fundraisers of the school for the year. So we really count on that to help offset a a lot of our financial needs as a school. Uh, Also a great opportunity to to get to know families in the the school. Um, So you guys are my biggest like helpers in this effort. So imagine, so I'm, I'm in this room and it's so fun for me. It's like all these, they're like, g- generally speaking, conservative, Christian, somewhat Bible believing, unaffiliated with any church at all. Because we fell away in college or they just stopped going to church. None of you I know can associate with that. Right? Stop going to church in college. Then I got married and had kids. And then we started thinking, we should probably think about eternal things. And they start kind of getting closest to a church and they happen to be close to us. And now they got our kids in our preschool and here they are. And we've got this opportunity to, to get to know them. So when I walk into the room, I just see people everywhere. I'm trying to talk to everybody. And, and it's certainly helpful for me if I've got you guys, I was my little like, helpers all over the place. And you're just like, hey, so your kids in preschool, hey, nice to meet you guys. Let me tell you about Bethany. Like, tell me about your family. um, Hey, you should come to church. If I'm to church, get to be friends with these people. So it's a great opportunity for that, a great opportunity for both a witness to the church and also uh, a fundraiser for for the school. That's a lot of announcements, sorry. Let's jump into the Bible study, chapter 19 of Luke which we, get, we began last week, and I'm sorry for going out of order. I know you don't really even remember or care if you do, but um, we started Luke 19 on Palm Sunday with Jesus and Zacchaeus. So that's how the chapter 19 starts off, and that's significant to just kind of walk into this. Remember, uh, the problem with Zacchaeus, he was a sinner, and he was short, but that wasn't his biggest problem. Then Jesus comes to his house, and he has this joy of being, having received the mercy of Jesus. He restores four, fourfold those who had defrauded. And Jesus says in verse 9, Today's salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, he's sitting at Zacchaeus' house. With, we know from, the, from, the pre, from that section, the Pharisees also seem to be there because Jesus talks to them, which is kind of confusing because that would have, they would have gone into Zacchaeus' house too, but they weren't really invited. So I don't know. They were they looking in the window, hanging out. It's hard, it's hard to picture how this was going down. But in any case, we know that the Pharisees are listening. The disciples are there listening. Zacchaeus is there listening. And in the context of that, we get the parable of the 10 minus. 
verse, starting with verse 11. And as, just before we jump in, I want you to keep in the back of your mind where Jesus is headed. We're in Luke 19. We're coming up on, we're within chapter 19. In fact, the next pericope, which we actually covered on Palm Sunday because of the timing of it, is the triumphal entry, which is Palm Sunday, which is the week that Jesus was crucified. So knowing that that's only a matter of days away, and now he's, he's in Zacchaeus' house. Think about the, the priorities of Jesus and what is most on his mind. That's really helpful for understanding what this parable is about and what it is not about. Verse 11. As they heard these things, who's they and what are these things? So again, they is the context of Zacchaeus' house, including the Pharisees, the disciples, these things, which would have been Jesus saying, the Son of Man, what he came to do, to seek and save the lost. That's the context. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minus and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might've collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I, he doesn't need any more. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. It got, it got intense quick. All right, back to 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. So he's sitting in the presence of Zacchaeus and others because he was near to Jerusalem. So we know he's headed to the cross and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. That's a, that's a key thing here. That's, so the kingdom of God has in fact appeared. Jesus is the king and Jesus is there. And everywhere Jesus goes, he's always saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near, right? But here the point is they're thinking the kingdom of heaven in the sense of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to be the power Messiah. So they're thinking, this is it. We're, 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 we're knocking on the doors to Jerusalem. And think about the disciples. They remember Jesus has been delaying going to Jerusalem because they know when he goes, there's going to be a big blow up. And they're thinking, okay, now Jesus said it was time to go to Jerusalem. There's going to be a blow up. And they're expecting it. And they're expecting Jesus to now be reigning as king over Rome and cast out the Romans and do all the power stuff. That kingdom of power immediately. And so he gives a parable. A nobleman went into a far country. That means it's going to be a while before he comes back. To receive for himself a kingdom and then come back. Calling 10 of his servants. So we're making a distinction between servants and citizens, by the way. Calling 10 of his servants. He gave them 10 minas. And he said, so we'd get the sense he gave each one. And a mina was approximately three months' wages for a laborer. So not, a, not an insignificant amount of money. And said to them, engage in business until I come. So he gave them something to do. The Greek word for engage in business was interesting. It's pragmateo, where we get our word pragmatist. What's a pragmatist? Practical. Practical. That is what? You're always looking for the answer. What, what works? Whatever works. 
So that's what this word is. He's, so go work, do. Engage in business isn't really the word there. It's go work and do until I come. So it's not necessarily make a profit, is it? He doesn't say go make money. He says go do, work. So this life that's lived in service to what the master has given, hey, just go, hey, take the mind and go, right? But his citizens, now not his servants, his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So how do they view the master? Unfavorably, they didn't like him. So they picture him as this harsh, taskmaster, and they see him as a reigning, a reigning, we don't want him to reign over us. So think the context, remember the Pharisees are sitting there around Jesus at Zacchaeus' table, and you got this, you got this picture of these citizens who didn't want him to reign, and the Pharisees are starting to wiggle a little bit in their, in their seats. Uh, if you reject the Lord of gifts, then you get only a Lord of law, and they didn't want a Lord of gifts, they wanted a Lord of law. They didn't like Jesus, so they, they reject him. When he gets back, when he returned, having received the kingdom, so even though, that the, even though the citizens rejected him, he still got the kingdom. So the rejection of, by the people was irrelevant. It's like Jesus, on, uh, when, he's, when he's, people are calling out, crucify him, crucify him, he's still gonna get, he's still gonna get his way. He's still gonna do the thing, even though all the people are rejecting him. Having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants, not the citizens again, the servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. That is, that Greek is only one word, what they had earned. And it's assumed earned by trading. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina. It's interesting. Remember how, so the master gave the minus to the, to the people. And yet, as the, as the guy's there saying, hey, look how well it did. He's not taking any credit for himself, but who gets the credit? The Lord's, really it's the Lord's this inanimate object in a way, but it's because it was the Lord's. It's the Lord's mina. Your mina made 10 minas more. It's the Lord's gift itself that brings the fruit. Not mine made it or I made it, but he was just a steward of what the Lord had given your mina made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because, so it doesn't say because you have turned such a, a great prophet. What is he commended for? Being faithful. And what was, what, was he, what was asked of the servants? What would define faithfulness? Just doing, yeah, going and doing. So it's not this measure of profitability that was the key, but his faithfulness and doing what the master had asked. And faith being faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. So now we get this reward proportional to the service, the success. And the second came saying, Lord, again, your mina has made five. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. Again, proportional. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. What was the problem? Handkerchiefs are icky. <laughs> Why would you put it in a handkerchief? No, what's the problem? He didn't say put it in a handkerchief, did he? Go do. And Why did he put it in a handkerchief? Because he saw the master to be, how, what? Scary. I was afraid of you. And fear is paralyzing, isn't it? And no matter how you think through the way fear hits us in our lives, fear is like, I don't, it's, it's almost like you don't want to do anything. So if I do, whether it's how we spend our money, how we spend our time, making a decision on anything at all, if fear starts to come into the equation, it becomes paralyzing. We just end up doing nothing. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. So this is, this is what he gets in trouble for. You thought I was a severe man? I wasn't a severe man, but now I'm going to be. 
If you want a strict king or a strict God, then that's what he'll be for you. If you want a Lord of wrath, then he'll be a Lord of wrath. He doesn't want to be. He wants to be a Lord who's known by the gospel and in mercy. But he's being refused as a merciful Lord and, he, and he's, people are holding him up to be a severe man and that's what they're gonna get. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Oh yeah, everything belongs to him. Everything already. So he says to him, I will condemn you with your own words. Having refused the Lord of gifts and gospel, you only will now have a Lord of wrath and law. You wicked servant, if you knew I was a severe man, taking what I didn't deposit and reaping what I did not sow, why then did you not put my money in the bank at least? And am I coming, I would have collected it with interest. That's doing something. And that was like a guaranteed return, albeit small, but at least it was something. But he said to those who stood by, now who's that? So the angel, ah, give it away. Talk on. <laughs> the servants are accounted for. The servants are already accounted for and the citizens are accounted for. So it's like, who does this leave? So he said to those who stood by, and some of the commentators are using this as this analogous to the angels at the judgment. Take the money from him and give it to the one who has 10. And they said, Lord, he already has 10. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now that's what we want to slow and chew on for a little bit. Um, let's look over my handout. I think we already answered number one. We answered number two. We're supposed to do number three. Who do the faithful servants credit for the growth of the investment? The minas. So what does this teach us? Oh, here's the question. What are minas? What are, what are the minas analogous to? So what, I mean, what might we think it is? So this whole parable is, so the, the master is giving stuff. He seems to give somewhat equally and he's asking us to use it in a responsible way and then we're rewarded for using it. So what might we conclude this is about? The gospel? Hey, you guys always give the right answer right away. It kind of takes all the fun out of teaching. I think it's money. It's money. Exactly. It's a... Thank you. Spirit, so, so everything from, so spiritual gifts, um, so talents, so we think about like what God has given me outside of even spiritual gifts, but like the abilities that one has, we certainly recognize God has entrusted those to us just as much as the spiritual gifts. And that would also then include even money itself. Is money itself not, a, not a, also a gift from him that we are to be stewards of? So we can start going down that road and trying to figure out what is what in this parable. And I think already we're gonna get, we're gonna get um, tripped up because we know that at this point, Jesus isn't interested in trying to tell us. So you could try to take this into a, a, a very law-based sermon and say, all right, God has given you stuff in your life, whether it's money. I mean, I mean, if I'm trying to raise money, that would be the effective thing to grab, right? God has given you money and you should be using it to advance his kingdom. That's what it means to be faithful. And if you're not, and it's, it's, it's the Lord's money, he's entrusted it to you. And if you're not using it uh, to advance his kingdom and, and using it responsibly in that way, then he's gonna take it away from you and give it to somebody else. So now it has you looking at your own use of money or your time or your talents. So if I'm trying to like motivate service in the church, what's, what are the gifts that God has given you? To some it's service, to some it's cutting grass. If I'm trying to get people to cut the grass, if you've got your, your Friday afternoons are free and you, and you like to ride a lot, riding lawn mower and cut the grass, I mean, you like working with your hands out so God has entrusted these things to. Um, by the way, Marty's looking for people to help him cut grass, so. He stood up right in time. Remember, we need people to help cut grass. Uh, if God's entrusted all these, these things to you, has you looking at your life and ask, oh, am, I, am I being faithful? So I'm trying to motivate you to do. Get out and, get out and do. Take, take hold of the, do a self-analysis of the, of, the, of the gifts you have and make sure you're putting them to good use and not wasting them, not squandering them, not putting them in a handkerchief, but going out and doing. That's, 
That would be me taking this parable and trying to use it to get you to do stuff. But Jesus is like a breath away from being crucified. He's not interested in, it, it would seem, he's, he's not interested here in telling us how to be good stewards of money and how, how, to, how to like rightly organize our life so that, we're, so that we're doing stuff properly. I mean, that has its place in the law, but I would say that's not the case here. And there's a reason for it. So, so someone said the minus were the gospel. So remember Zacchaeus. So we're in Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus, he had plenty of stuff. And that, so he gets commended, not because he had a bunch of stuff and he had turned a big prophet, but Zacchaeus is actually committed. He ends up giving it away. But what's the main thing that Zacchaeus had received? What's the mina that Zacchaeus got? It wasn't money. It was faith, the good news, the, the gospel. He's received this good news. And then, of course, that grows fruit that's been entrusted to him and is starting to grow fruit all over the place in Zacchaeus. That's this, that's this mina that he's received. And what does he do with it? What's he supposed to be, what's he supposed to be doing with the mina? Giving it away. So what does it look like to, to do, to, to pragmateo, the mina of the gospel? Well, for Zacchaeus, what did it, he was giving his money away. It actually took, it manifested itself in his generosity with the money that he had been given. But that's not the case for everyone. Not everyone is in Zacchaeus' shoes. What else is Zacchaeus able to, what, else, I mean, what do you think Zacchaeus is going to spend the rest of his life talking about? Yeah, you never guess who is in my living room, right? The gospel, the gospel is the thing. That, so you, that is the mina that we're entrusted, that we've been given us this gospel, and it's not to be hidden under a bushel. It is to be spoken. Let it shine, right? Or, or, or stuck in a handkerchief, but simply to, to do with it is to let it live, to, to spread it, to speak it, to let it ripple, ripple out. Um, so the, everyone who has, more will be given. So the one who has the faith, gospel. But interestingly, the one who has not, so the one who does not have faith, even what he has. So if I've got everything that this world can give and yet don't have faith, I ultimately have nothing. It's all taken away from me. But for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, and the Pharisees were like, uh-oh, bring them here and slaughter them before me. We get this stern picture of the final judgment for those who have rejected, rejected Jesus as the master. Now, if we, put our, if we want to use this parable as a, as a tool for improving ourselves, we would be turning the parable into a parable of law, which is precisely the thing that the parable is against. Maybe that's what, that's what Jesus is getting mad. Lord, you're a, you're a stern judge. You ju you want, you're giving us laws to kind of keep, and I'm supposed to make you happy by keeping the law, and I was worried that I was going to mess that up in some way. See? So that we can't go about it by way of the law, and to go about it by way of the law is to look at the, to look at the servants and try to conclude too much. The gospel way of looking at the parable is not to look at the servants, but to look at the master, who is, in fact, generous. He gives. He wants to be known for being generous. He's entrusted stuff to people, and he says, go and, go and use it. Go and, go and have joy with it. But if you want a stern master, if you want to live in fear of God, then that's the kind of God he will be for you. So he comes in wrath. And then for those who are rejecting him as even the, a master at all, there's the final judgment. So the context being in Zacchaeus' house uh, helps us interpret the parable, doesn't it? Knowing that, we're, knowing that we're in the context of Zacchaeus, surrounded by the Pharisees, and that Jesus is on his way to the cross, it's very helpful in keeping this parable from falling into some sort of a, a guide for motivating us to, to get to work in our daily lives, right? To be a, be, to be a better steward financially, or to motivate you uh, to use the stuff, the gifts that God has given you in your life to serve, our, to serve your neighbor. That is all good, by the way. But it grows, just like with Zacchaeus, Jesus never told Zacchaeus to give away a dime. He just came into his house and he knew Zacchaeus. He honored Zacchaeus and showed mercy to Zacchaeus. And out of that grew mercy. 
So for Zacchaeus, it was loving the neighbor. So too here, um, and when it comes to this, understanding the Lord as a righteous Lord, a merciful Lord who comes to us in love, has given us so much, and then he just sets us in this world to live in joy. The natural growth from that is using the gifts that we have to serve our neighbor, whether it's money, time, the talents that he's entrusted to us, the abilities that he's given to us. Of course, we're gonna use that in service to our neighbor and service to him. But we're, we, you don't get that from a sincere heart by demanding that with law. You, get, you have to get at the heart first. So Jesus is always after purifying the heart, scaring the unrepentant heart, bring them before me and slaughter them. You think that's going to wake up a couple of Pharisees? If they were just, if they were for sure goners, why would he bother even giving the parable? He doesn't need to give the parable to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is already in. Who is Jesus after? It's the Pharisees. So Jesus even giving this parable of this like fear of those, if I'm thinking God is a stern master, that I'm gonna somehow please with the law, I'm gonna end up having everything taken away or even worse, slaughtered. And that, that's the wake up call of the law that brings about the repentance of repentance and faith. And we know it worked in a few different key situations with like Nicodemus, uh, Joseph, Arimathea. We get, these, we get these Pharisees who kind of flip, who repent. Uh, not, let's see if we have more questions here. What, what did the wicked servant do wrong? We already talked about that. Yep, I should probably use my questions as I'm teaching. So your handout is to help me stay on track, see? Any questions on the parable of the 10 minas? Yes, ma'am. Very good. So, so number four in your handout, how does, how does his view of the nobleman impact his life? And what is the application for us? Is, uh, I'm just kind of repeating what you already said for the benefit of everyone else. So if we're thinking God is this severe taskmaster who takes what he did not sow and we're living in fear of him, as, as we said earlier, fear is paralyzing. So then to go through life thinking that that is God is paralyzing for me or... I'm going to actually become the citizens who say, I don't want this, I don't want this God. Think about people in your own life who have rejected God because they saw him as a strict task, task master. A good, good friend of mine in, in uh, elementary school, Matt, grew up in a like, very legalistic Methodist church. And um, I took uh, apologetics with Dr. Francisco at seminary. And one of the, one of the like, assignments was we had to find an atheist and interview them. That was fun. So I, oh, I knew Matt was an atheist thanks to Facebook and his, his outspoken statements on Facebook back in the day. So I, I got on there and sent him a bunch of questions and got, started talking to him, like what, what was the thing that pushed him over? But so he, would, he is a PhD in paleontology. So he's a dinosaur doctor. And um, so he's, he obviously has that science evolutionary like foundation but that wasn't the thing that did it. It was, he, when I pushed him hard enough, it was when he was, he, the, the God that he learned about in school or in, in Sunday school in church was a God that just had a bunch of rules and he couldn't make that God happy. So what was the point? So if that's your, if that's your picture of God, you want a stern taskmaster who takes what they did not, what you reap what you did not sow and so forth, that then you just, I don't want this God to reign over me. I want a different God. I want to be my own God. I want some other God, right? Um, but then it means even in us, I mean, that's, that's easy to point the finger at the atheists for those maybe who are rejecting Jesus completely, but to bring the law to bear within us is the, to, when we understand, when we fail to see God as his generous giver of gifts and mercy, it actually kills our generosity and mercy in our own lives. But rather, we're set free from living in fear of God and actually have, we're seeing him as a merciful giver of gifts. And then it sets us in this world like with this renewed joy 
to just go around sharing what, what's given me. I can't keep it. I can't take it with me anyway, right? So it's nice to, and we, we, then our sinful flesh kind of starts hoarding again like raccoons, all the shiny stuff. And then the God gives us a wake-up call. But it's interesting, I keep running into people on their deathbed and they become very disinterested in the stuff of their, of their material existence. And they just want to give it away. And they'll say, they'll talk about how I kind of wish I would have given away, I wish I would have enjoyed giving it away like while I could actually see people enjoying it, right? Speaking of which, your brother Dave is nearing death daily. Dave Bodenstab used to sit right here. And if you'll notice, for a while there, he was falling asleep in Bible study. Um, I like to say that that was the medicine's fault, but I think it was mine. Uh, but you know, he was on some pretty heavy meds with the pain for his cancer. They went from his bladder to his lungs to his brain, and now it's everywhere. And uh, so he's, he's nearing the end, and he's, he doesn't really have very much family, and you are his family. So as I'm thinking through his funeral sermon, you are to be commended. So many of you have been there, just like sh- whether bringing him to Bible study, bringing him to church, uh, being there with him at the nursing home, because um, otherwise he is alone. And so if you got time in the coming days and weeks, he's over at Tabor Hills, two, three, four, you just pop by and say hello. He is least anxious when someone is there simply saying hi. But, uh, but yeah, so Dave's often on my mind, but Dave just, as he, as he reflects on his life, he's just like, it's interesting in your own situation, think about people you've talked to on their deathbed and what is important to them, what is not. And when, then we have our wake-up call. Oh, man, why, why am I getting so focused on these silly things that are just, that they're going to go, they're, they're going to fade like the grass um, because we, we're in our sinful flesh and we start to like, we think that we're going to be eternal in our, in our mortal flesh and we start trying to accumulate a bunch of stuff and we get hung up on pride and don't forgive people and hold grudges and stuff. And then we get a, a, a wake-up call to our mortality and, we, and the, the Lord sets us free to see him as a generous and merciful Lord again, to start giving it. I'm not, I'm not suggesting give away all your stuff. I'm just saying living, living, without this, living without a fearful God, but living with a God who's giving us joy in our daily life. Sets you free for how you spend every minute of your day, knowing that he's not judging you, but he has given you what you have and you're just delighting in it. I had, there's a hand back here in the back before I'll come back to you, Rich. Hand over here, James. James, <laughs> this guy's the keyest problem. Well, I think from, from the, that's a good point. So there's certainly the idea of the, the, the disciples missing, the disciples missing. Well, that's great. We'll talk about it later. No, that's an excellent question. So he said, so as I, so I was pointing out at the very beginning of the text, as they heard, verse 11, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So what does the, the unfold, as, as I unfolded the parable, what was the significance of the parable for them thinking that the kingdom of God was going to come immediately? The immediacy of the kingdom didn't seem... Uh, so I, I think at, at the very least, it's like the focus is going to be on Jerusalem. The focus is on the, on the cross. And that ultimately he is, there is going to be a final judgment because that's what, that's what this parable concludes with a final judgment. He's going to go, he's going to come back and there is a judgment. Um, but then for the Pharisees, who are, or I mean, for the disciples who are expecting Jesus to act in power, how does the, how does the parable get us, give us Jesus not according to power, but according to, to weakness. Just that he's giving the gospel in weakness. He's given the, the minus that he gives is the gospel itself. Yeah, I'll have, to, I'll have to chew on that. That's a good, excellent question. I'd prefer, yeah. 
More question over here. Well, Rich, 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 how when I'll come back. Yeah, I stuck that in there to equip people. So how do you get hold of more? Well, I'll, um, I'll provide. I'll, I'll get some more. You can buy them online. This is the, it's for the benefit of the group. There's a book in, in, uh, that we're using to minister to Dave. It's called Five Things to Say of the Deathbed, Deathbed of a Loved One. I've given it to a few of you as you're kind of ministering to family who are near death. Um, Brian Wolfmiller, who we know from a lay theology conference, he put this together years ago. You can, you can download it for free from his website, wolfmiller.org or something. Um, you just Google five things to say at a deathbed of a loved one, comma, Wolfmiller, and it'll come up. You can, you can download it for free or buy it bound for five bucks. It's a helpful resource to have because how many of you have like delayed, like if you go see somebody who's dying, like what am I going to say? It's just like when I try to comfort any of you who have lost a loved one, I can't make it any better. You're, you've been in the same situation. You can't actually, you can't make a person feel better because you can't give them back the thing that's making them hurt. So unless I can raise the dead, I can't actually take the pain away. But I can speak love and comfort into that mess just as Jesus did, right? So you can bring, you can speak of Jesus. We speak of the hope that Jesus gives us, trying to, trying to bring comfort there. Same with the deathbed of a loved one. God has given us his word to speak into the darkness. And so to just grab it, have something to grab a hold of. But if you just walk in with the Bible and you flip to the beginning, you're gonna get, you're gonna get hung up in Leviticus for a while. And when I'm dying, don't come, don't come reading Leviticus to me, please. <laughs> Skip to the end, you know? So that's the idea. To summarize the scripture in a helpful way. Yeah, Pat. Mm. And you put it to work, and I'll come back. There you go. Yeah. So he's, and, and that, well, that's instructive for us as the church now, as Jesus, who's certainly with us always, as he promised through holy baptism, in the same way, he's not with us in the same way as that he was in the flesh, but he has entrusted to us the minus of the gospel to then do with, to, to love with. Well, yes. Did all of them get it? Did all of them get it? It would seem like no, especially, especially not now, because these are the guys, as we're going to see here in just a few verses, we're going to skip over the triumphal entry. Um, but these, these Pharisees who are kind of like uh, poking the fire. What's the word? Stoking the fire. You can poke a fire, but that's painful. Stoking a fire uh, to get Jesus crucified. But, I mean, a lot of them come back later. Repentance comes later for them. Like, think St. Paul, formerly Saul, who was this angry Pharisee, but he was, he was converted later. So we're going to skip. So um, any other comments or questions there? we got like a few more minutes. I think we can get through the next, the next section here. So last, uh, on Palm Sunday, we hit the triumphal entry. Um, one, th one note of clarity, I mean, they had a good question, I think, when we hit the triumphal entry on the colt, the foal of a donkey, what's the difference between a colt and, well, all a colt is, it's like a baby boy. It's the difference in a colt and a mare. Um, I was hung up on the difference, because in different translations, you just get like, there was, a, there was like a mother and a baby, so which one was he writing? But that wasn't really the point. The colt, what's a colt? It's the, it's the young male. All right, let's skip over the triumphal entry and get to Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Just a couple quick questions on that. Ah, maybe. Verse 41. So remember, Jesus has, he's got the, he's gone the triumphal entry. He's come in. They're Hosanna, save us now. Um, verse 40, he answered, I tell you, if they're, they're saying, teacher, rebuke these disciples. They're treating you like you're the Messiah. And he says, I tell you, if the stones, if these were silent, the very stones would, would cry out. So there's, a tr there's this rejoicing crowd um, right in front of him. And then in contrast to the, to the rejoicing crowd, we have Jesus who draws near, sees the city, and weeps over it. In contrast to this triumphal power, 
welcome that he has. He's looking at Jerusalem and he's weeping. And here we see, we see the heart of Jesus toward unbelieving Jerusalem. That's question one. Uh, verse uh, 42, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you and your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. So we get this this prophetic picture of what's going to happen in 70 AD when Rome comes and just levels Jerusalem. So he's weeping over them, not so much because they're going to get leveled, but his heart for them is, well, what's the heart of Jesus toward unbelieving Jerusalem? Yeah, is he angry? No, he is weeping. So I love this phrase I thought about this morning. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Is that not also ultimately our heart? I mean, having been instructed by Jesus, obviously, but our heart toward unbelief in the world is that ultimately we have peace. And we often forget it in our sinful flesh, but we are able to see, we're able to face trials of all kinds with peace that the world cannot give whether it's economic instability, um, war, rumors of war, disasters, death, suffering, just all the terrible things, we're able to say, I have peace in the midst of all these things because the, the Lord has brought the solution to all these problems. Well, I can even rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. I can rejoice in the face of suffering uh, and have joy even, regardless of what happens, because I have this peace that the Lord has given me. That's old, is, is that not also what we're, what we're longing for people to have? So it's not that, like, man, I, I just wish they would, they would start believing so that we could join Bethany and we could get more numbers. Or that they would just start coming to church more regularly and so they could give more money or some kind of nonsense. It's ultimately that we want them to have the same peace that we do. So for someone going through, and I've given you the parable before, the parable of the workers in the vineyard, the ones who are working in the vineyard in the heat of the day know that they're gonna get paid at the end. But the guys who are stuck back in the city who didn't make it, who didn't make it onto the truck at dawn, they're standing in the city center in the heat of the day wondering if they're gonna be able to feed their families. They don't have peace. So they're facing the same challenges and sufferings as everybody else, but they don't have peace. So that's Jesus longing for them to have, the, the, to know the things that make for peace. And that's our, I think that's our heart as well. And that's what we're after is trying to speak peace into the chaos so that people would have um, could be on an, un, an unmoving rock in the storms. They could have something to cling to in the disasters that inevitably come. But what are the things that make for peace? It's an easy, you throw out the Sunday school answer there. Jesus, what are the things that make for peace according to the Pharisees? If we could just keep everybody, if everyone could just follow the laws and, keep, and perfect themselves, then things would be okay. And we, think about how quickly our sinful flesh falls into that. At least we judge everybody else in that way. If, if everybody else would just keep the law as good as me, then things would go well. Isn't that often how we think about the world too, by the way? If we could just get the right man and get the right laws, then we'll solve the real problem. Well, no. I mean, we're, we're, we're trying, we're, in that sense, we're trying to avoid earthly suffering. We're trying to love our, like, love our children, our grandchildren. That's why we're making those decisions. But at the end of the day, we know that that's not the kind of peace that lasts eternally. So the things that make for peace are not achieved by the, are not achieved by the law. The things that make for peace are Jesus. So there's the proclamation from the angels. Remember on, on the first Christmas Eve, peace on earth. And now peace even in heaven, this reconciliation between God the Father, and that's proclaimed by Jesus into this, into this world. That's the stuff that makes for peace. And there's a longing. 
There's a longing for them to have that. And so, um, just in rear, I guess your uh, one question to hit really quick before we're out of time is for number four in the back of your handout before Jesus cleanses the temple. Is Jesus waiting for Jerusalem to do something so he can forgive them? That is, is Jesus like, come on, if Jerusalem, I, I would love Jerusalem if they would just say that they were sorry. Think about that. Well, exactly. He's already done something now. But as Jesus is, notice Jesus' love for them and his mercy toward them and his forgiveness for them precedes their even asking for it or desiring it. That is not to say, just in case any of you are going to accuse me of this later, this is not universalism. That is, Jesus just forgives everybody and there is, there is no hell and everybody's going to heaven. My point is, Jesus died to forgive the sins of the world. And yes, unfortunately, there are many who, who, who choose to walk out from underneath the umbrella during the fire sulfur storm. So if you want to walk out from the umbrella, God will let you. But the fact is, he died to cover everybody with the umbrella. And so Jesus isn't there waiting for Jerusalem to do something, to be sorry enough. How are we to understand being sorry for our sins in relation to Jesus forgiving sins? So Jesus isn't forgiving you because you can muster off enough, I'm really, 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 really sorry. Because the fact is, you're usually not. Or you're not sorry for the stuff you should be sorry for. You, so, you try to self-justify that stuff, right? Some stuff is easier for you to ask for forgiveness for than others, and some stuff you want to cling to, right? So when we stand before God and plead guilty of all sins, even those we're not aware of, and he's forgiving us, not because of anything within us, but because Jesus died. That's his mercy toward unrepentant, re denying, rejecting Jerusalem, is this, it's, it's mercy that precedes asking for it. And then it's, it's that mercy that actually then generates the response of asking for it, right? So we, cry, we come to church, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy, Lord, have mercy. We just received absolution already. We've already had, we already received mercy. And so that's all we know to even ask him for it. We know that he's, because we know he's merciful, we can continue asking for it. So that's helpful here in the way we approach this unbelieving world and our families and our communities um, so if we would approach them with this heart of, of love that desires for them to know peace in a way that they do not, that they don't know it because they're not receiving it from the Lord in the way that he is choosing to give it to them. So we want them to know peace in the same way as us. And then we're able to love them with the heart of mercy to Jesus. So that, so that kind of, I mean, maybe it's not just me, but like I always, my instinct is to get angry with unbelief. Come on, why didn't you get it? rather than what Jesus is, is mercy and desire for them to just to have this peace. It's different. Then he gets angry and cleanses the temple. We'll talk about that next week. Any last minute questions before we wrap it up? All right, next week we'll jump into uh, Jesus cleansing the temple. Wrap up 19 and jump into 20. The Lord be with you.